welcome to Conversations About Life. We may have picked up some birds out there. <laughs> um, oh, that would be that'd be good. Yeah, which be about us. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Um, Bob and Martha for letting me come mm-hmm. over and have a conversation with you. And um, Bob and Martha, I met Bob and Martha through uh, contra dancing. And um, contra dancing is uh, a type of um, social recreational folk dancing, a little bit like square dancing, I guess, for someone who's never, um, you know, have have has um, seen contra dancing. Only it's in long lines, and um, Bob and Martha um, also um, led dancing at my son Billy's uh, wedding, and uh, we've kind of gotten to know them um, over the years. And I'm looking forward to getting to know them better right now. So, how are you guys doing? Great. Well, good. Traveling far too much. <clears throat> Traveling. Bob is a, has turned into a really good. Uh, organizer of gigs, you know, he can call and I can play. And yeah. so we've been traveling around the country, uh, all the way out to California, uh, all the way through the, the Vols, Huntsville, Nashville, Louisville, those, those places. And coming up in December, it's going to be in, oh, you know, Georgia, North Carolina, Washington, Florida. Wow. <laughs> all of it driving. Okay. Mm. Yeah, that is a lot of traveling. We put yeah, we're we'll we'll be over ninety thousand miles since I, I retired two years ago, May, mm-hmm. and we're over ninety thousand on the ground, and then about another forty thousand in the air <laughs> dancing. Yeah, so I know you know the way I described contra dancing. People really need to see a video of it to really kind of see what it's <laughs> like, and I can put that in the show notes. But is there any other way you would describe it? Yeah, it's um, easy dancing, very social. Yeah, mm-hmm. community uh, style dancing. Community style right. dancing mm-hmm. to live music, almost always to live music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like if you can walk you. and count to eight, you can. You're an expert if you can walk. You can contra dance if you can count to eight as well. Then you're an expert contra dancer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and I know, you know, just from hearing things that you, you've said before, um, Martha, that you're also, um, you know, you care about the community and just the mm-hmm. impact that dancing has on a community and so forth. It's amazing. I mean, it kind of saved my life at a point when I was was very unhappy and, and someone suggested I come contra dancing and I had never been in a group of people where everyone was kind and friendly. You know, I mean, it just, it was amazing and transformative. And I realized as, as I watched over the years that there would be other people who would come in who would be kind of the usual, you know, I don't talk to strangers very much kind of people. And within a few weeks, months, they too had become relaxed, uh, friendly, cheerful people. And it really does. It's the touching, you know, we are dancing, we're holding hands, we're, we're, swinging around um so that's that's part of it but it's also that we we 
it's part of our mores to smile at our partners, to acknowledge and appreciate the people we're dancing with. And over time, all of those people start treating other people the same way. And so it becomes this really um, wonderful, kind of loving community. We sometimes have to apologize to people and say, oh, you know, we're kind of a huggy bunch. Don't, don't take it too seriously. We just, we just like, like each other. (laughs) And so, um, and it's also, um, you, you can come with a partner and people will sometimes dance with their partner, but we encourage everyone to dance with a different person each time through the dance. And because the way the dance is constructed, you end up dancing with everyone in the line that you joined. So it's a very democratic, um, you know, it came from England and somehow I don't know how this monarchical society uh, developed this kind of dancing, but it was, I guess it was in the country that it danced, that developed that way. And so the early settlers in New England brought it over with them. Um, it kind of lay dormant in New England for hundreds of years when, while uh, Polka and Waltz took over. And then in the counterculture 60s, 1960s, when everything communal became popular, communal living, communal grocery stores, communal this and that, this kind of dancing just exploded across the country. And we are the beneficiaries. Hmm. Yeah, it's a, the, the emphasis is on inclusion rather than skill. Mm-hmm. That's the social aspect of the dance is more important. You know, you can find places where you go where there's workshops on doing advanced stuff and, and you can use your dance skills, but, but the regular dances, and it's true almost everywhere in the country where, mm-hmm. where, you, where you go that it's, um, you're welcome. And in all those travels that, that we've done, uh, We've probably got half a dozen nights in motel rooms. All the rest of it is people, mm-hmm. you know, if it's country dancers. We, we had over 100 people last year at our house Okay, who were traveling through here for dance weekends. Yeah. And even if, even if they were strangers to us, we know they're country dancers. We know what kind of people they are. Yeah. <laughs> so delighted to have them and meet them. And they're so interesting. I don't know why it attracts so many smart people. I mean, it kind of does. I hate to be, you know, like that, but it seems, I think it's because we're pattern people. We see, you know, we like repetition and symmetry. And so it pleases us to do this kind of dancing. So there's always this, this tension between excellence and welcomingness because we, we do try to dance well. You can dance this stuff well, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the welcomingness. So trying to find ways to be both excellent and welcoming is our task. Right. Yeah. Well, Bob and Martha, um, how did you meet each other? <laughs> <laughs> we laughed. Okay. Alex? Uh, yeah, Emily. <laughs> my 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 daughter fell gaga for her son at a dance weekend. Okay. They were 11 and 12 at the time or 12 and 13. I remember it's but mm-hmm. in that range and so we started hanging out so they could hang out. Um mm-hmm. you know, it, it was 
I mean, for Emily, it was the whole thing. I mean, here's this boy. He's almost six feet tall, a fantastic dancer um, and smart. You know, she could use three-syllable words and, you know, (laughs) and he got it. I mean, they played Go and did Minute Mysteries and stuff when they weren't out on the dance floor. So they were (laughs) – they were hanging out, and you know, the, my funniest story is we were driving back. It was a dance weekend in Lawrence, Kansas, and we were driving back, and Emily was going on and on about Alex, and I said, well, you know, Emily, I said, his mom's pretty cute. Maybe we could double date. <laughs> oh, Dad, that's disgusting. <laughs> I won the toss. <laughs> my oldest daughter then cooperated and decided to, to uh, go to Wash U, in St. Louis, we were we were living in the uh, Kansas City area at the time, and so I was having to commute to St. Louis to help Sarah get settled in at Wash U, and and uh, Martha and I got to know each other better and better. And yeah, I, he he happened into my life just about the time when I had I had been divorced for a while, and I had dating lots of different people, and I finally just decided I didn't want to do that anymore. And so just about the time I said, okay, no more guys in my life, Bob walked in. And so I said, I said, no. And he said, oh, okay, well, can we be friends? I said, sure. And, you know, the very, his very ability to take no at that time as not an affront, but just a, okay, well, we could do something, you know, we can be friends was really helpful and useful and nice and nice. But he so he kept he would come and he would stay at my house and we would talk and and uh there was one week when he came for parents week at, at WashU and I came home from work the next day and he was sitting at the coffee shop outside my house. I said, What's what's what happened? He said, Oh, I made a mistake. It's next week. <clears throat> well the night before we had talked till nine o'clock. That night he stayed. We talked till 10. The next day, Saturday, he stayed. We talked till 11. On Sunday, I said, I have a date today. You have to go home. But during that week, I thought about what he had said. And he didn't have to sleep on the couch anymore the next week. So, And it was only six weeks after that that I woke up one morning with a diamond ring on my finger. It was on my right hand, and I, and I woke up, and I don't—I'd been married before, so I put it over on my left hand, where that's where you wear rings, and and he took it as a sign, and uh, he claims he got it for me as a birthday present. No, <clears throat> no, I don't. I bought it for you as a Christmas present. <laughs> okay, your birthday is her birthday is two weeks before. Well, this was her birthday weekend, and I woke up in the morning and went in to make coffee. And her right hand was out there, just sitting up out of the blanket. I mean, just I was sitting there. And I said, "Okay, I'll get her something else for Christmas." I got it. It was just a little heart shaped diamond. It wasn't like you know, like an engagement ring. It was just a. And and so I just went and slipped it on her finger, and she woke up and goes, "What's this?" <laughs> I mean, I ask you, what guy gives a girl a diamond ring as a present? Anyway, so I said, "What's this?" And he said. Well, what did you say? I said, hmm. Would you marry me? Does that mean you want to marry me? (laughs) (laughs) Would you marry me? You said, would you marry me? And I said, well, sure, maybe. maybe. (laughs) (laughs) So we were engaged from that point on for the next five years. 
uh, until both of our children, our, our youngest children, graduated from or about to graduate from high school. But we we got we did actually get married before they graduated because uh, we had had three graduations that particular June, and we figured a wedding in the middle of that would not be good. So instead, we got married on New Year's Eve. At the Contra Dance. At the Contra Dance. Our wedding ceremony was a waltz. Yeah. We, you know, we both entered from two different doors. We, we waltzed one and a half times around the room. And then uh, my son rolled out the, the white sheet that you do in a church, mm-hmm. you know, to walk down. And I walked down. And, and my, uh, I have a cousin who's a minister, and he was the, uh, and he, I told him, he actually talked a little too long, except for one thing. He had found every reference in the Bible to dancing. It was beautiful. So everybody is standing around hearing all this great stuff about how wonderful dancing is. And then uh, basically, I now pronounce you man and wife. My father uh, was there. He he was already had Alzheimer's, but he was able to light the candle and we had to candle. Be careful how you tell that story. Okay. And so we, we passed around the light to everyone, the personal illumination devices. We didn't, you can't have candles in the Monday club. And um, so... I said, all right, everybody make a wedding wish. And then, of course, we had our first waltz together. And then um, I danced with Alex. You danced with one of your daughters was there. So we danced, and then... And so we spread the dance. We would dance for a little bit, and then people would go and ask. And by the by, a very, in a very short time, everyone it was a in snowball the room, dance. Yeah. Every, okay, everyone was dancing. You right. know, and that was that was how we we got married. And uh, it's been working for we we're almost what eighteen years, seventeen, yeah, eighteen years uh, now. Eighteen. Yeah, this will be um, eighteen coming up. Yeah, this will be seventeen. No, this will be seventeen coming up, and then we were we were together five years prior to prior to that. So, so we think it's working. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll we'll get back to you on that. <laughs> I mean, they have been some of the happiest years yeah. of my life. So yeah, cool. Yeah, it, it seems to be seems to me to be working. <laughs> um, and then uh, my folks. Uh, I moved to St. Louis because my now ex-husband had a job with the St. Louis Symphony. He was the manager, and then he became the executive director, and he his salary tripled. And you know, what with one thing and another, he he needed a new trophy wife, and and uh, so we got divorced. Um, but uh, I was in St. Louis when my when my father got Alzheimer's and my mom got Parkinson's, and we had twenty four by seven care. But the night people were weird, so. We moved in to help care for my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this the evening shift, night shift, and um, and it was it was wonderful. It worked out well for them. And then when they died, we we divided up the whole estate, and the house was part of my my inheritance. Mm-hmm. And so we we have just simply stayed here. And um, because it's bigger than two people need, we've used it as a place to. We decided at one point in the early, uh, it was about 20 years, what, 15 years ago, we decided to learn to call the dances because we went off to an English dance and we saw how wonderful it could be. And we thought, oh, let's learn how to call this stuff. So we started off learning to call English and um, in the room in there that we showed you. Mm-hmm. 
And, uh, but the English group didn't accept us very well. They wouldn't let us call at their dance. I don't know why. But the contra group was very welcoming. So we started learning to call contras and English. And so for about 10 years, every Wednesday, every Wednesday, if we weren't in town, we had the, the people who cared for my parents gave the calling party. Every yeah, Wednesday. We had, Michelle was amazing. She knew the whole setup. And so yep. we, we didn't have to be here for the calling party to happen. Yeah. We usually Jim or one of the other people who was an experienced caller would uh-huh. kind of organize the calling part mm-hmm. and Michelle would put out the snacks and move the yeah. furniture and Yeah. So by the end of the first year we had seven new callers. Only maybe three or four of them are still calling, but by now we have so many callers in St. Louis there isn't actually enough opportunity. We had to create a new dance series. Uh-huh. That that multiple people call in the evening just so people can get some flight time to right. to mm-hmm. so yeah. first practice. Saturday of every month there's a it's, it started up being called the hatchling dance because we we called ourselves hatchlings we didn't want to threaten the the regular callers and um, but then we started calling it what do we call it caller's choice no it wasn't that that wasn't the first thing it was is that what we called it after yep. hatchling okay so it. Oh, and we, and the other thing was it was for both English and Contra, and the English dancers didn't come because they only do Contra, or they only do English and they don't do Contra. And after a while, the Contra dancers realized that we were going to call two or three English dances in a night, so they stopped coming because they don't do English. I mean, now what we have discovered over the years is that the reason people don't like the other dance form is that they're not quite as comfortable. And as soon as they become comfortable dancing the other one, they like it too. They don't believe us at the beginning. They say, oh, no, it's because this and this and this. No. Because many times it happened that someone would come to a calling party where we definitely do both English and Contra. And somebody would come in their, their first time and they say, oh, English, I hate English. And I say, yep, I understand. I was like that too. And let me show you the three moves that confound Contra dancers about English. So we'd show them. I don't know, siding and casting and set, turn single or something. And um, rah, rah. so maybe they go away. In a couple of weeks, maybe later, they'd come back to another calling party and somebody else would want to call an English dance. Oh, English again? Not, oh, English, I hate, but just, oh, English again? So they'd do it and maybe they'd go away again for two or three weeks and they'd come back the third time and and they'd say, English, okay, I think I know how to do this. And the next thing you know, they'd show up at an English dance. I think I know how to do this, Is was the key. And six months later, they'd come up to me and they'd say, Oh, Martha, I love English. I'm not very good at it, but I just love it. So I, and I've seen this with other, going the other way as well. You know, it's just once you feel comfortable knowing how to do it, it changes your attitude toward it. Very strange. Yeah. So the calling parties, then, oh, then the really great thing about the calling parties was after a couple of years, people realized that there was a way to test out new dances. Because the way you normally, if you're a choreographer, you to write one of these group-type dances, you have little salt and pepper shakers, you move them around, you know. But we had live salt and pepper shakers. And so they started writing dances. And the and they started being really good at it. Bob is one of them. He's a really good dance writer. And one of our guys, Jim Hemphill, is just a fantastic dance writer. So we would write contra dances. 
um, English country dances. People would just, and they would come, people would Skype in from elsewhere to, to if they had written a dance, they would send us the dance. We would call the dance and they would have, have a little, you know, video camera on the phone and they would, and sometimes they would even call. I think the first time that we called. I was in a hot, I was in a hospital bed. Uh, for some testing, I was going to be overnight, and so I called a dance from the hospital bed mm-hmm. via via mm-hmm. Skype, and it was interesting because um, typically when you do that, you want the sound source to be with the caller, so that whatever delay there is, it's the same. Mm-hmm. It doesn't because they can adjust the volume on the other end. You get the caller and the and the sound to be even. Mm-hmm. And and it comes out, but I didn't have a sound source there in the hospital, so I had to listen to the music several times, and we did some clapping to figure out what the lag was. Okay, and we were lucky; it turned out to be exactly one beat. Okay, so you <laughs> at, had to call one beat early. We right. So the the hard part was instead of typically you would call on on an five, eight beat six, phrase, seven, eight. you'd call five six seven eight. Well, now you had to call on four, four five, five six. six seven for it to be right. <laughs> Right. <laughs> on the on the other end, mm-hmm. and uh, so eventually we had enough dances. We we put them together and uh, a mo dances Missouri dances mm-hmm. one and two and and actually it's time for four five and six. Yeah, we have there's... so many new dances that have been written and tested. So we showed you the uh, parquet floor, yeah, uh, that we replaced with a really beautiful new oak floor, and um, Bob has made. Uh, placemats out of it and we, we we take them sometimes to dance weekends as as a, a gift for a fundraiser and along with with a set of uh, coasters or something uh, made out of the parquet you'll get a list of the 230 dances that were vetted on that floor mm-hmm. and that does not include the ones that didn't make it <laughs> As we say, the, the the real thank you from the community comes from the ones that they were not subjected to no. <laughs> because they were tried here first and like, oh, that was a bad idea. Right. But I mean, I was here that whole 10 years and I I was shocked yeah. when I saw that list. Yeah, we had over 500 dances on that floor. Wow. Just so... Um, yeah, and so lots of lots of new dances and lots of really good ones too. So they're being they're spreading out all over the country, all yeah. over the world. In fact, New yeah, Zealand. Three of them calls were just them. published. Yeah, so uh, that's been fun. So eventually, um, you know, partly because we were not <clears throat> invited to call with the other English group, eventually, and we we wanted the caller's choice dance to be. Well, we, we named it Caller's Choice because if you are a caller and you really want to call an English dance, you have the right to piss off the contra dancers and and call an English dance. But most of the time, that first Saturday dance is a contra dance. That hasn't happened for for yeah. almost 10 years so contra that anybody's or, called an English dance at that yeah. dance. So, or contra <laughs> or squares. And then, so we decided that to give ourselves a, an opportunity to call English dances in public, we started an English dance series on Third Fridays, and um, that's been very popular. I mean, um, people have come, and then we started having a a dance weekend. We called it in the beginning High Tea and Whiskey because it was both Contra and English. 
but eventually the ladies of the Monday Club, who are very, um, what's the word, Pro- prohibitionists, um, <clears throat> said we could not say whiskey on a, on a flyer that was at the Monday Club. And I wasn't there to, to tell them that, you know, there was really never any whiskey involved. I don't even think there was any tea involved. Now there is. We, we do try to have tea. So we changed it first to because it was high tea was the English and whiskey was the Contra, the, the American, right? And um, <laughs> one person said, well, I like the idea, but you spelled it wrong. What do you mean? Whiskey is spelled W-H-I-S-K-Y. I said, oh, no. It's spelled K-E-Y. I looked it up, W-H-I-S-K-E-Y. And I checked with a friend of mine from from Tennessee, and he says, oh, well, no, 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 that's not the way we spell it. We spell it like this, B-O-U-R-B-O-N. <laughs> so, but uh, then we, so we changed it to high tea and sarsaparilla. Uh, <laughs> so belly up to a bar and order a sarsaparilla. And, uh, and then we just dropped it, dropped that completely and made it just an English dance. And we have had some of the best English callers from the, all over the country come and my my local group is very sweet to me and they allow me to invite musicians that I would like to play with and so we've had some fabulous bands that I, I was um, pleased and proud to play with um, and this this it's, weekend is, is another one it's coming up this weekend it's this is the fifth year in a row that it's sold out mm-hmm. yeah so it's become a it's become a a, a thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, no, So this is is yeah one of the best callers in the country is going to be here, Joanna Reiner, hmm. and Dave Weiser's fabulous piano player from uh, the East Coast, and Amanda Ramey is from uh, Champaign Urbana. We just happened to have have uh, jammed once and so started reading each other's minds, and I said, "Whoa, that would be good." So we're gonna we're gonna have a good time this weekend. That's the kind of thing. <clears throat> that's that's how. So I kind of do the the musicians and the music side, and I make up all the, the binders full of music. and And Bob is our organizer, so he's uh, a really important part of that. What we do. Yeah, you know, I thought I would ask you guys, you know, a little bit about your growing up experience, and just so we can kind of go back and just talk about kind of earlier in life. You want to tell us, Bob, just about. You know what, where you grew up, what it was like, think your family, things like that. Yeah, um, I grew up in in Pasadena, California. Um, my dad was a native Pasadena, and he was born in in Pasadena. Uh, and my mom uh, migrated there. Sometime between elementary school and high school, she was in. They were in Brooklyn, and and they wound up in in L.A. She graduated from L.A. High and and went to UCLA. She graduated from UCLA with a degree in Latin oh, wow. in nineteen twenty eight. <laughs> but um, I had a brother and a sister, but I was. 10 years behind my brother and 13 years behind my sister. So I was like four when my sister went off to Stanford. I didn't get to know her as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was major, mostly a major pest to my brother <laughs> until he until he moved out. 
which was clear through college. He wound up, we were there in Pasadena. He wound up going to Caltech. And so he was at home clear through college, but that's how I got started dancing. Okay. Was, you know, I think it was called, I think if the babysitter was going dancing, they, he had to take his little brother, I think was, I, you know, I don't officially know that, but I have a strong suspicion that that was, that that was the case. Uh, but uh, in fact, we have a friend coming today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I started dancing with in 1957 at the Pasadena Folk Dance. And how co-op. old were you then, Bob? I was seven years old. Okay. Wow. So, uh, and so did your whole family dance? Uh, just my brother, my brother and sister did. My parents did not. Okay. And I, at least not from the time, you know, mom was like 40 by the time I was born mm-hmm. and dad was an executive at Lockheed Aircraft. So, you know, he was at work 90% of the time. Okay. Um, yeah, Pasadena, I mean, it was a great, it was a great school system. When I moved, when I moved to Missouri, uh, I found out how good my high school education was because I managed to get by using it in a mm-hmm. in a career that requires college diplomas. But certainly compared to the coursework that I ran into and the few college courses that I took here in Missouri, our high school was substantially more rigorous. Mm-hmm. And 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 com- complete California school systems. This was, of course, pre Prop 13 when they were still supported. Mm-hmm. Vigorously, it was wonderful, wonderful school system. Yeah, I played football in the Rose Bowl. That's my was our home stadium in high school. Okay, <laughs> people look at my size and they say, "You played football in the Rose Bowl?" I say, "I played inside tackle." <laughs> Man, you must be a lot tougher than you look. Well, no, it was. <laughs> so, what was your home life like? Like you uh, said, your dad was gone a lot. So, um, did the rest of y'all and uh, spend time together and uh, pestered? Yeah. Um, our, our, we had a rule at our dinner table. Um, you had to let every other one go by. They're all father. terrible punsters. When I say terrible, I mean horrible. I mean really good punsters, <laughs> but but yeah. punsters. Yeah. See, I mean, I I was quite certain up until third grade. I was quite certain that I was developmentally disabled. You know, conversations at the dinner table were often in Latin. Okay. <laughs> you know, a brother and mom, and when my sister was home, you know, they were 10 years older, and, and right. the topics of conversation were like, <laughs> <laughs> and it, it wasn't till I got my scores back in the first set of standardized tests that I realized that that probably was not the case. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Um. Yeah, I was um, I was active um, in aside from dancing, I was active in in Boy Scouts. Um, we had a great scout troop. Our scout troop master would take us up into the Sierra Nevadas every summer. Yeah, and we learned to track and fish and and really how to make camp and leave no footprint. And I mean, he was he was an amazing amazing guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, And I was um, became involved in the, in the church youth group a mm-hmm. lot. Eventually, um, uh, our church was a member of the International New Thought Alliance, and I got involved in the national 
happening. And that's how I got to Kansas City. I was um, in in uh, I was in the in New York for the for the moon landing in 1969. We were in the Waldorf Astoria at a conference, and we were all huddled around this little black and white TV watching the moon landing. Mm-hmm. But one of the people. Uh, who was there was one of my mentors and um, was teaching at Unity School in Lee Summit, Missouri, and suggested that I come apply at the seminary. Um, so I changed my flight on my way home from New York and wound up in Lee Summit, Missouri. <laughs> okay. Hmm. Well, Martha, why don't you tell me about your you know, growing up experience, home life, things like that? Well, I was born in Alabama. Okay. Yeah, my, my parents are from, my mama was from Huntsville. My dad was from Enterprise, Alabama. They met at Auburn. So my first sentence was, I want a glass of water. <laughs> uh, I was born in 43. My dad uh, went off to fight the Second World War. And so he didn't, I, he didn't see me again until I was two years old. Uh, <clears throat> and at that point, he got a job with, Monsanto up in Dayton, Ohio, and the three of us moved up to Ohio. So that's why I sound like I do. I'm, I'm really, I, I spent most of my, my life, my young life in Ohio. So um, Dayton, Ohio, and then I went to Oberlin and uh, lucked out, didn't realize just how lucky I was that I had, had chosen the perfect school for me. Um, and I, I started, I came home one day in the third grade and, and uh, they had said, offered to have anybody wanted to play the violin. I'm not sure I even knew what one was, but I said, Mom, can I take violin? And she said, that would be nice, dear. And so I started playing the violin. I was terrible. I remember fourth grade, I was last chair, second violin, and my and got called out for looking up at the ceiling because I wasn't paying it. And I, I uh, and so finally my mom said, you need private lessons. So I had private lessons. I, I was still terrible. But then about seventh grade, my uh, teacher had a... a group of people. It was a, a chamber orchestra that played in this beautiful art institute in Dayton, Ohio, with Italianate um, pillars. And we sat in the middle. And I was last year's second violin again, but that's okay. Um, we pl- One of the things we played was a piece by Grieg that had been the theme song for a TV show called I Remember Mama. And the music was so beautiful that there and then I decided to take it seriously. So starting in the seventh grade, and that's I've had, well, I've been doing it already for four years, and finally I said, oh, I see, oh, music. So by the time I was a freshman in, in uh, high school, I made it into the Ohio All-State Orchestra. I was last year second violin, but the next year I was second chair, second violin. And the year after that I was fifth chair, first violin. And my senior year... I was the concertmaster. Oh my gosh. So during those high school years, I just apparently practiced enough that I got better. And I got into Oberlin, which I'm now told is, a, is an amazing thing to be able to do, but I didn't, I didn't know that was hard. And um, so I went to Oberlin and um, fell in love with string quartets. I had a fabulous string quartet and um, got married when I was 20 years old. And uh, my... Um, X got into Harvard in political science, which happened to be one of the things I was really interested in studying if, at Oberlin if I hadn't been in music. I was ready to jump over to political science. Um, so we moved to Harvard. I mean, we moved to Cambridge. And um, 
uh, what with one thing and another, it was the 60s, and um, okay, we got divorced eventually, and I went back to school, and so I went to the New England Conservatory and finished a degree there. My fabulous violin teacher, uh, Joe Silverstein, who was the concert master of the Boston Symphony, and I started playing, um, started being a professional musician in Boston, you know, playing operas and ballets and uh, Broadway shows on their way to Broadway and string quartets and symphonies and things like that. So I lived in Boston for 25 years. And in the meantime, I, uh, while I was there, I met a cellist, fabulous cellist, who we got married. We had two children, and he's the one who got the job in St. Louis, which moved us here. So I was basically a professional classical violin player for 25 years in Boston. Then we moved to St. Louis, and I've lived here now for 30 years. And uh, within a short time after we moved here, as I said, I got divorced and started contradancing. And at first, I wouldn't let anybody know that I played because I wanted to dance. It was so fun to dance. But eventually, I met Pam Carson and David Kirshner, and the three of us just loved playing together. And so we formed a band called String Dancer, which turned out to be a very successful band. We traveled a lot of places and played, and we made a CD, which is still used by um, dance groups around the country. You know, when they don't have a real band, they'll, they'll use some of the music from that CD. Um, and after a while, I realized that I love playing for dancing so much that I don't want to play. If people aren't moving around, you know, if, you, if they're not moving around, why bother? So now I'm very clearly a dance musician. I play for Contras. I play for English. We have a once a month waltz party where we play waltzes and shadishes and polkas and tangos and svifakers. And I'm hoping to, to get us to learn how to do uh, a couple of other kinds of dances, you know, of, the, of that variety. And I've had a, just a fantastic time playing with wonderful musicians, but always when people are dancing. Morris? So, oh, Morris dancing. Oh, we had a great Morris team. But it, it, we were together for several years. And, but then it broke up because three of the members decided to move to New York so they could go to the opera. I'm asking you, what Morris man goes to the opera? So I still miss them because they were wonderful (laughs) people as well as being, uh, uh, I really enjoyed playing for Morris. So did you have uh, siblings at home? Oh, yes. I was the oldest. See, I was the first one, right? 43, I was was the oldest. And I didn't have, I was an only child for seven years. And uh, so I'm, totally spoiled. And then my brother was born. I thought that was fantastic. And then my mom had another little boy. And I said, Mom, I want a sister. But the second, the second one was so adorable, blonde, blue-eyed, dimples. I mean, he was, he was adorable. So I guess I liked him too. But then finally, finally, she had a girl. And so I have a sister uh, who is 12 years younger than I am. And uh, so growing up, she thought, I thought I was special. Oh, and I said, no, no, you thought I was special. I, I don't think I'm that special, you know. But And finally, we started working together as grownups. I became a, a web designer, and she was she's a graphic artist. So And she'd worked in, she'd got a library degree. So we were making websites for libraries in Massachusetts. And so she was my boss. And the wonderful thing about that was our relationship changed. I was no longer just the big sister. Um 
I was her employee. And we became absolutely best friends, and we remain that to this day. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I was really lucky about that. My brothers now live in, Cal- in California. One became a fireman. Uh, and youngest captain in a fire t- uh, fire department ever in the history of California, uh, and then when he gr- when he uh, retired, he started working for Habitat for Humanity, building houses. I just I admire this brother so much for the the, the goodness mm-hmm. of his heart um, and his skill at at building things. He has amazing mechanical yeah, skills. He really does. And then my younger brother became. Um, an eye surgeon of all things, you know, he became, so he's, he's doing okay too. Mm -hmm. So we have, um, yeah, the family uh, turned out just fine. I have, have, I have excellent brothers and sisters. And as I say, my, my sister and I have now, you know, the ones we're on the outer edge is I'm the oldest. She's the youngest. Mm -hmm. Um, but we are just totally, totally good friends. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, have any religious beliefs like, one or the other can you know answer or, or both of you or uh, well yeah we'll just start there i'll tell you bob bob can tell you his is more complicated i i grew up a methodist but then <laughs> i i uh i kind of lost god i was you know i was kind of a i was show me the evidence is the kind of is, became a thing so i became i i you know i speak greek so i know what agnostic means it's not what everybody else is as an agnostic it means i don't know the a means not, and gnosis is no. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I am. I'm a, I don't know, you know, I, I'd love to. I, I just find it difficult to um, believe in the supernatural. So that, 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 but I am a great follower of that guy. What's his name? Uh, Jesus. You know, I have, a, I have a, a red letter Bible that has all the words of Christ in red. And I said, mm-hmm. that's, my, that's my belief. You know, be nice to people. Do good to those, you know, that are, you know, treat strangers well. Um, be kind. You know, that, that right. sort, of, sort of thing. That I'm a big believer in, that sort right. of thing. So you appreciate the, um, like the social teaching of, of Jesus, in other words? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that and I, you know, I feel, I feel as if our contradance world embodies that about as well as anything that I've ever ever seen. Better, I'm sad to say, than my churches. Hmm. So that's, yeah. you know. The, Bob has a... Has yeah, a, that community. Uh, I mean, to me, that community embodies... Uh, what the community of churches and and what the best churches and and synagogues and temples and mosques do mm-hmm. uh, in terms of fostering fostering uh, the better angels mm-hmm. and people um, and um, yeah I, I I take I take serious issues w- with dogmas uh, where people you know claim to have the truth and and some monopoly on it um, I, I I let's say that I'm I'm highly skeptical <laughs> and that's being that's being kind mm-hmm. Um you know, I think it's a search and it's it's a it's a journey. Um, 
and it's certainly it's certainly been interesting. Um, definitely, the dance community serves for us the what church communities used to do. If you think of the old rural church communities, that's pretty much it's it's like a little village, even in the city or um, that when there is places. Uh, I mean, we go to a fabulous dance down in Rolla, Missouri, where the community. I mean, you watch the children are like cared for by everyone. You have to really actually know who the parents are because you can't tell because everybody's looking after everybody else. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really, it's really fun to be around. And, and there they have religious beliefs that are very different from mine, but people are still coexisting in a wonderful, friendly, loving way, uh, that the dance community, that the dance community provides. Mm-hmm. So the dance community provides that social um, community that a lot of people get from church is what you're saying. Yes. That provides that for you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah and as I mean, as you know, and uh, you know, are you a Methodist, a Catholic, a Muslim? No, I'm a contra dancer and I, I can go, I can go to any city. I can go to almost any city in the country and, and, and find my church. Mm-hmm. Um, how um, how have you guys grown throughout your life? How are you uh, different today than you were as young people? Interesting <laughs> question. Well, I certainly learned a lot more patience. Okay. Um, you know, I could be I could be pretty argumentative mm-hmm. when I was when I was younger. <laughs> part of it was surviving in the things and, and I was a bit of an I was a bit of an outcast in a neighborhood <laughs> for religious reasons um, and what were those reasons well I was I was pretty much the only non-catholic in the neighborhood oh, I see. okay <laughs> and um <laughs> I'll just say that there was a certain lack of graciousness <laughs> right. uh, in that, you know, that I'm, and I'm, I certainly don't want to say that universally about the Catholic church. That was just specific about yeah. that particular community at that particular time, but um, uh, was certainly, was certainly the case. Um But I fell... I fell into a career that gave me tremendous opportunities to learn about myself. Hmm. Mm. Um, I was in the mental health business mm-hmm. um, in <clears throat> almost every aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Tell them how you got into the mental health health business. I think that's an interesting story. You know, when you left the uh... yeah, when I left when I left seminary. Um, I went, uh, I was volunteering while I was in seminary at a, um, what would you call it? A hippie hospital, a place called the ecstatic umbrella, Kansas city, 
was there was the counterculture explosion happening, mm-hmm. psychedelic drugs and and um, communal living and those things were all busting out and 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 they would had just uh, hit Kansas City where they'd been in in Southern California for some time. So I had a little knowledge and I wound up. Um, we did all kinds of things. We wound up setting out one of the things we hadn't planned for was that a lot of runaways would come to the neighborhood, to the area, Westport area of, of Kansas city, mm-hmm. um, kind of as a, as a place for refuge. And we wound up setting up a runaway house. We did a drug analysis service. We worked out a deal with the feds where we could get drugs off the street and get them tested and get pictures of them to the emergency rooms. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, you know, in return, you know, could put the word out like, hey, if if don't buy this thing that looks like because you'll be sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you know, we were in a position to have some trust in the neighborhood because mm-hmm. uh, we were definitely uh, professional hippies. <laughs> but then the mental, then the, the. But that the, uh, and and the board member was, a, that thing was primarily sponsored by the Methodist church, although there was, uh, there was. Uh, some uh, Baptist minister and a number of people and some money from the Baptist church and a number of church groups that actually provided the uh, um, group called Young Adult Projects mm-hmm. that was um, sort of an ecumenical group provided the funding for that. And one of the people on the board was uh, a supervisor in the community service department of the mental health center that as we were closing that project down, he suggested I come to work at the hospital <laughs> and they didn't have an opening in the community service department, which I, I am very thankful for now because I wound up spending two and a half years working on an inpatient unit as first as an attendant and then a psychiatric aide. And that's where I, 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 just a whole series of amazing, unusual events allowed me to build a career without going to the university we had a director there who had this crazy idea of getting every maverick that worked in the hospital and putting us all in one unit as a crisis intervention unit to see if we could prevent hospitalizations. And I got a full month of training mm-hmm. on medications, on screening techniques, and so on. I was one of just a few aides in the entire state that was allowed to do an initial screening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm based on that training and as part of that unit. And then uh, from there, I spent five years in the community service department seeing what happens. I mean, you learned, it's one of the interesting things I learned, the difference between in those days, whether you got discharged or whether you got sent for long-term treatment was whether or not you had a job. (laughs) (laughs) It, it was it was mm-hmm. it was about a ninety percent indicator, mm-hmm. and so one of the first things I did in the in the community was set up a, a job readiness group. Like, I hooked up with this fabulous counselor from the Missouri Employment Office, mm-hmm. and and but you learn a lot about yourself in that work. These people are, in many cases, certified experts at upsetting their environment. And if you have a button, they will find it and they will push it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sensitive to that. Isn't that interesting? 
Hmm. And so um, I found that the people who were good at that work were not necessarily the altruists. People who were in it for themselves on a personal basis, certainly not on a financial basis. <laughs> I worked very cheap for a very long time. Uh, but the amount you learn about yourself was, I can't think of a, a better school or a better education. And of course, when I got into the management side, that knowledge was priceless. Hmm. And then yeah. how did you use your management skills? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I said my job was social engineer. I ran a very large residential, 180-bed residential facility for chronically mentally ill mm -hmm. for most of my career. Um, and you realize the job was social engineering is how to adapt the pieces to help somebody, to help somebody s succeed. And... Most of my work, you know, was really working with the temperament of the people who worked for me. Hmm. Okay. Like, how do you pass on that thing of empathy and how do you look to see it from the client's point of, the client's point of view? Right. Uh, hmm. Wow. That was amazing. Um, and it... Rumor has that I had some pretty good skills at that. <laughs> yeah, that's why you know, why I married him because I figure if I ever you know go a little little nuts, he'll know what to he'll know what to do. He'll be able to take care of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, I you sh you gave me a tour of your books, Martha. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> what um, so what books have really had a you know a major influence on your life? Oh gosh. Um, that's a really that's a good question. I also I'd have to think about that. Um, you know, I, I just I used to just read just read good books. That's that's what it was. Um, well, you know, it's true. In in high school, I started reading philosophy. So, and and one of the one of the things that really influenced me was reading Plato. Of all people, you know, I think uh, there was, uh, I read the story of philosophy. That was a book that really influenced um, what I thought about. And of that, the chapters on the Greeks really meant a lot to me. Then I found myself in 1968, 67, 68, in Italy, so close to Greece, but not quite there. You know, I mean, and I learned Italian, so that was wonderful. I was just there for a, a few months. And, um, and a, f a couple of years later, I went to a party, and and Bobby Stallman was there, great flute player. I said, Bobby, what are you doing this summer? He says, well, I'm going to a Greek island to play music. I said, oh, do you need a violinist? He said, would you come? He wasted 20, you know, 20 minutes telling me how beautiful it was. And then we got on to the, you know, get it, where to get the plane ticket and the, the visa and all of that. And I found myself very short time after that on a boat traveling from Athens to the island of Paros in the middle of the Aegean Sea. So in the 70s, I spent seven years on a Greek island, I, well, in, the, in the summers. There was one winter. I spent the 73, 74. I spent uh, the whole year there. Um, and I think that, so, and that all started from 
reading the story of philosophy hmm. and reading and being interested in the Greek philosophers because there was a kind of clarity to their thought. They were do- Democrats. I mean, that's, that's, you know, the democracy, demo, demos is the people, right? And krasia means to hold. So the people hold the power. It's what democracy means. And, um, I also was living, you know, I got to, I, the first year I went to Greece, it cost me $200. That included airfare and rent and food. Oh my gosh. We walked around and the island that I was on had been occupied by the Germans in World War II. So the farmers and everyone was starving. I mean, many people starved to death in, in World War II in Athens. Thousands of people. And on the islands, farmers had to build little houses out in their fields so where they could stay because people were coming and stealing food from the, from the fields. And interestingly enough, the, the reason I, one of the reasons I was there on that island was that an American had started an art school there. And my friend Bobby had, had shown up and he's a musician and he said, well, would you want some musicians? So we had, we had a, uh, a zingrotima, which means a, uh, an ensemble of uh, musicians from Boston and we went and we bought a piano in Athens and but we walked around the island and and uh, there was this one gorgeous little tiny house all it has was one bed one table you know and um and uh, the girl said well he wants too much money for it he wants ten dollars a month it's really only it should really only be eight dollars a month I said I'll pay the ten <laughs> So I lived in that coming from Boston. <laughs> I, I, I lived in that little house every summer for except I eventually had a Greek boyfriend and and, and we lived elsewhere but um that was just you know so that that whole thing starting from reading the story of philosophy ending up six summers and a winter in Greece was just fantastic you know I mean and one of the things the most important things I learned was <laughs> How incredibly rich I am. I had no idea. Because growing up, my parents always made me feel like we didn't have enough money for this or we didn't have enough money for that. And there I went and there were people who had nothing, just nothing. And they were happy as long as they had each other and they had enough to eat and some food. You know, they didn't have to have money. They just had to have a place to live and food to eat. And, um, you know, there was no air conditioning. But the houses were made of stone, so they absorbed some heat during, the, you know, they would be cooler during the day than outside, or warmer in the night than outside. Um, and so I learned from those people who lived on the island, who had nothing, but were still, okay, I realized that when I got home, and I had this little dinky apartment in Cambridge, oh my God, but I had a bathroom with running water, and I had a refrigerator. I was richer than the richest woman in the world in the year 1000. I still have a little icon that one of my friends painted of the Empress Theodora. So she, you know, Theodora, um, the emperor of the whole area in the year, um, and she was the wife, and she she didn't have running water. She didn't have a refrigerator. Oh, my God. And so I, I came to basically accept um, not striving to be rich or not striving to be important or not striving to be better than anybody else, but to be happy with what I had. You know, and I think that that has been 
um, that's been really useful. You know, I don't have to, you know, I, I, I get worried when I'm around rich people and they're like crabs in a basket, each one trying to, you know, get on top of one another and bite each other with their little claws. Not me. You know, I just, I'm rich beyond my wildest dreams just being here. You know, you, you mentioned uh, a liking for uh, Plato and Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. Is there just anything in particular about um, Plato's philosophy or anything that just is really appealing to you? I wish I could tell you, but, um, you know, I have developed a CRS, can't remember stuff. Um, the S is sometimes <laughs> a different word. Um, and I'd have to go back and, and re-look at that. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I would, yeah. Okay. Well, Bob, um, has there been any particular person or book or just anything that's really uh, had a you know a strong influence on your life? Wow. Yeah. There. Um, there have been a, there's there have been several. Um, uh, the early ministers of my parents church and what kind of church was it it was it was an independent church uh was called the church of truth there were about a half a dozen of them uh, was founded by a fellow named Irwin seal in seattle um mm-hmm. or at least he was in seattle by the time i came along I'm, I'm not sure where he started our church was in in pasadena but um so it was a, like a, it was a christian church it, it, it was a christian church With a more Eastern orientation. Okay. Um, there were regular meditation sessions. The library was full of Emerson, Thoreau, Gurdjieff, okay. Ospensky. Uh, it was... It was really about how to be... Rather than there was virtually no dogma, okay, at all. Um, you know, see, that was one of the interesting things. It was in that it was affiliated with Unity in that large national group, but it turned out to be very different. When I got to this seminary, they made a dogma out of not having a dogma <laughs> at Unity. This is what we believe, <laughs> and like, okay, that's why. That's why we mm-hmm. we. After a year, we parted ways. It was like it was mutual. Like no, this um, I had the, my one good friend there, and it turned out he was on the outs <laughs> with the upper management. And it's just hmm. like, oh, I see. Okay, but um, but Tom and Jean uh, Williams just you know um, how to be introspective. Um. And then, in terms of, of writing, I found I found the work of of Gurdjieff and Ospensky to be invaluable as a filter on how to evaluate information. Um, you know, sort of I sort of use a three baskets a three basket system that came from that. Uh, Things you know, uh, things you'd like to know, and things you don't know. By far, 98% of all information goes in the things I don't know basket. 
mm-hmm. that if you're honest with yourself, and that pl- includes about yourself, uh, that uh, self-observation and evaluation is a much trickier business than I think many people would like to believe. The idea of free will, uh, we are bounced about by our environment considerably. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, certainly my, my older brother and, and, and encouraging me to dance. I mean, it was funny because we fought like cats and dogs until the day he moved out of the house and we instantly became best friends (laughs) and um, hung out and, you know, I'd been dancing at the, at the weekly dance, community dance and, uh, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license to be able to go to. There was a whole series of coffee houses in Los Angeles mm-hmm. where you could dance seven nights a week in multiple locations in that, at that time. It was really in international folk dance. It was an amazing, it was an amazing scene. Um, and, Shared that, you know, I blame my brother and my mom for the humor. <laughs> Turns out it's hereditary. My grandson already has it at the age of three. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's frightening. Um, well, where, um, what would you like your um, life to look like in the upcoming years? <laughs> He's already shaping it. <laughs> travel no more than four, four hours call a dance play a dance travel no more than four oh oh spend the night with a dancer <laughs> yeah travel four hours call a dance play a dance spend a night with a dancer starting starting in upper maine and ending up in lower california and everywhere else in between <laughs> yeah <laughs> So, like a lot of times, I'll ask people, you know, what do they find most satisfying in their life? You know, when what are they doing when they just really experiencing joy and so forth? And I almost like your answer is probably like dancing, right? But like, is there anything? Can you near or fiddling? There's sometimes. Okay. Phrasing. And then, uh, can you pin narrow it down to like just what it is um, um, that's so satisfying about that activity? I couldn't tell you why, but, um, you know, when there is a beautiful piece of music and I've got one or two other really wonderful musicians who understand how to shape a phrase of music and how to make the harmony cluster in some places and let loose in other places and and you know be grounded in some places and soar in other places when we can create that sense um and if i'm able then to give that sense of that piece of music to dancers and i can see that they are soaring or grounded you know at this at the same time that the, as the music is doing it oh is there any greater happiness, joy? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with Jordan Peterson? No. Okay. He's on YouTube. He's a psych- 
um, uh-huh. psy- um, psychiatrist from Canada, but he's anyway, he, he mentions, um, like being on the edge of like, um, chaos and order. And it sounds like that's a little bit like what you're describing where you got the order of the disciplines of your music, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then you don't know exactly where it's going to go and just how, you know, there's a little <laughs> bit of chaos there too, you know? Yeah. Which, which I, it's my job to shape. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's get this chaos wrestled into the ground here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. See, for me, I it, it's the synthesis. The thing about the dancing, it brings all kinds of pieces together in one point. Um, um, the it has an intellectual component to it, especially the English country dancing. Mm-hmm. You, you, you're you uh, playing with time and space, mm-hmm. very mu- a little bit in contra, very much so in English, figuring out what makes the whole thing flow. And meet with the music. Together. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, there's the ob- yeah. obvious physical component and that, the... the uh, Sharing the moment with the other dancers, mm-hmm. and 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 that bonding that happens as as a piece of that, and and communicating. Uh, I love waltzing, for example, for that reason. That um, I tell it. I tell a story that I say comes from my grandfather. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I may not let the cat entirely out of the bag here, but um, <laughs> Grandpa so, used to Grandpa used to say <laughs> that uh, that a good lead could get his partner to go where he wanted her to go, but a great lead takes her where she wants to go. This advice has broad application. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That. Uh-huh. Learning how to do that kind of communication with others. Lead and follow at the same time. Yeah. So it's the synthesis of, of the physical aspects, just the moving of it, uh, the mental aspects, and the emotional. I mean, it's a place where it just mm-hmm. all comes together for me in a way that it literally doesn't any place else. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Martha and Bob. I appreciate the time and being able to talk with you and just for you thanks for sharing your thoughts and your lives so. what a pleasure i mean i have so many things to think about now okay, okay. <laughs> yeah all right all right thanks guys <laughs> if you use a podcast app like itunes please give a review of conversations about life